Morning, everybody. Morning. Great to see you. Uh, I won't ask if everyone slept well. That's already been done. Um, yeah, really good to be here this morning. Um, as I said t- yesterday, for those of you who weren't here, I'm married to Joe. We've got two sons, Andrew and Daniel. And I remember when the new series of Star Wars films came out, the one that began The Phantom Menace, and uh, I took my boys to go and see it, and uh, we, this is golly, a long time ago, maybe 10 years or so ago, and we came back, it was the middle of summer, we came back, and we're sitting around the dinner table as a family with my wife, uh, chatting about uh, the film, and uh, my eldest son, Andrew, started to scratch himself Uh, kind of all over his shoulders and and kind of obviously in some kind of discomfort. And so I I said, um, you know, Andrew, what's the matter? And my wife said, "Um, he's got prickly heat uh, because of the sun. He gets it every year. And obviously I'm in touch with my children. I know what's going on. I was just like, oh, does he? She said, yeah, yeah, he does. He gets it every year. I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. So I said, well, why? Why does Andrew get prickly heat every single summer? And my youngest son, Daniel, with this really serious face said, because he's the chosen one. (laughs) (laughs) Which to me is just too much Star Wars, I think, kind of going on there. But, you know, when he said that, something literally inside me kind of went, yes, Andrew Summerfield is the chosen one. He's chosen by the creator of the world who knows him, who loves him, who has a destiny for him to be a world changer. And so is Daniel Summerfield, and so is Joe Summerfield, so is Matt Summerfield, and so is every single one of us in this place. The question this morning is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? And my hope this morning, as we look at God's word, is that we will believe it. That when we thought about last night the challenge of confessing religion and embracing Jesus, that some of us maybe ask the question, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm worthy. And I'm praying by God's Spirit that He will absolutely affirm us, but also challenge us that, uh, as a good friend of mine uh, says, and I'm sure he plagiarized it from someone else, that the good news has to be good news to us. And then it must be good news through us into the lives of others. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Well-known story, Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 17. I'm reading from the New Living uh, Translation. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. This is really early on in Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 2, verse... 13 through to 17. Jesus is in Capernaum. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. Now, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax, collector, many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Brackets. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. 
But when the teachers of religious law saw who... Um, sorry, let me say that again. When the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. May God help me by his spirit to open this up to us today. This uh, story, as I said, picks up in Capernaum. It's the early few months of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is very popular in Capernaum. If you uh, look at the end of verse of chapter 1 of Mark, you'll see that literally kind of revival comes. The whole town uh, comes to Capernaum. And so he's known in this place. And um, he is now walking alongside the lake and the crowd are surrounding him. And he comes across this tax collector's booth of this guy, Levi. The other gospels call him Matthew. Uh, We don't need to worry about the discrepancy there. His name probably was Levi Matthew or Matthew Levi, like my name is Matthew Anthony, um, surname Summerfield. And so it's commonly accepted that he probably held both of those names. Uh, A tax collector's booth was probably like an, an elevated platform that stood slightly aloof of the crowd, that sense of a tax collector ominously staring over people as they went by. And it's likely that Levi was collecting taxes not just from the people, the citizens in Capernaum, but actually also the merchants who were passing through the town. It was a trade route from the northeast round to the Mediterranean uh, south and the west. And, And we all know today that tax collectors are sometimes not seen as very popular people. Do we have any people who work for the Inland Revenue here uh, at all? You've stoned them. Excellent. Yeah, indeed. Which I think is obviously the right practice. But um, that was a joke, just to be absolutely sure. But, but, um, but, but I'm, I have a sense of confidence that if I went to look at all of your cars, there's no love heart in the back of your car that says, I love tax collectors. I just sense that, that that's true. But, but actually, whilst we joke about that today, 2,000 years ago, I mean, this was a different level of being despised. And particularly in Levi's case, there were two issues for him. If you were a tax collector, then you worked for Rome. Uh, And the Romans were the oppressors of God's people. And so by working for the oppressors, God's people, the, the other Jews, would have just thought, you know, this guy is a traitor of the highest order. He's working for our enemies. And secondly, uh, not only was a tax collector working for Rome, but they were very greedy and very deceitful. The Romans didn't pay you as a tax collector. The way that you would get your, your money is that not only would you charge the tax that Rome demanded, but you would add your extra stuff on the top for your own income. And so not only were they working for the enemy, not only were they oppressing their own people, but they were ripping their own family off, essentially, to live a wealthy life, and they were very wealthy. And so for this reason, Levi Matthew was considered the lowest of the low. Remember, the Pharisees called him scum. It's a horrible word, isn't it? Scum. Can you imagine yourself calling anyone scum, that sense of, you know, I wouldn't wipe my shoe with you. The lowest 
of the low. If you were a tax collector, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. You weren't allowed to go right in. You were a huge source of shame uh, for your family. Everyone looked down on you because you you, um, valued money more than anything else, including your own people. And just think about that, the church's response to the tax collector, where the churches would say, we want nothing to do with you. And the church thinking that by doing so, it was enacting and fulfilling the will of God. This is what God would want us to treat these people like scum. To keep these people apart from the rest of God's people. Their view of God was that God was angry, he hated sinners, and that certain people had to be kept out. It was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who said this, If a man's concept of God is an error, the more fundamentally committed he is to it, the more damage he will do. If our concept of God is wrong, if we've got hold of the wrong Jesus, then we're going to end up doing a lot of damage. I wonder who you would consider today are the modern-day tax collectors. Because we joke about the tax collectors, but in truth, it's, it's not the same, is it? But who are the people today in our society, in your street, in your community, that actually people tend to turn their noses up at? Who are those people? And we can be, if we're not careful, quite self-righteous on this and say, no, well, we love these kind of people. But the reality is, if we're really honest, if we really press down hard enough, all of us can find, sadly, we all have our prejudices. We all do. And we may think it's not the obvious ones, but sometimes something happens, a word is said, someone walks onto a bus, someone comes across our path, someone says something, and it just bubbles to the surface. And we may surprise ourselves. We didn't realize it was there, but we all have, I would suggest, our prejudices today. And so Jesus stops. He comes to this tax collector's booth, this scum. And I can imagine, you know, the crowd stops around him. The Pharisees are looking on. And everyone is expecting Jesus to give it to Matthew, Levi Matthew, with both barrels. Everyone is expecting Jesus, the holy man, to just declare what they all know to be true, that this guy is rubbish and he's living this terrible life. He's a screw-up. He's a mess-up. There's no hope for him. There's no grace for him. There's no forgiveness for him to reinforce what the church, the synagogue, have been saying. And Jesus, as he often does, blows their mind because he's unpredictable. You can't put Jesus in a box. They expect him to behave one way and he behaves another way. And so he looks at this tax collector and he says those incredible words. Follow me and be my disciple. Follow me and be my disciple. Now, to understand how earth-shattering this was, how revolutionary this was, we need to understand a, a few things. First of all, Jesus was in his time respected as a rabbi. People called him rabbi, great uh, teacher. So there was this deep sense that people looked at Jesus and, and recognized that whereas few people did, he deserved, he owned the rabbi title. 
And so just hold that thought as we think about the whole journey of education that you would go through from childhood to get to that kind of place. From the age of six years old, if you were a child, um, you would be taught to learn and understand the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The school of learning was essentially the synagogue. You were taught in the synagogue and you were taught by the rabbi. The the chief guy who everyone respected in the community, who knew the scriptures inside out, who knew how to apply them, who had the way, the best way. They were the best of the best. And as I said, very few people became rabbis. By the age of 10, children generally would know the first five books of the Bible off by heart. They would have learned them by the age of 10. And at this point, this was kind of a defining moment, a separating of the wheat from the chaff. If you were doing really, really well, if you'd learnt them all and you were progressing well, then you'd continue in the education system to step two, which I'll mention in a moment. But if you weren't, if you weren't that great, if you couldn't quite remember what Leviticus 14 verse 3 was, and I know it's just on the tip of all of your tongue, I can tell, if you didn't know, then you would just bomb out of the education system and go into the family business. But if you stayed on, you'd go on to this next stage. It was called Bet Talmud, the the house of learning, where you were expected until the age of uh, 13 years old to then have memorized 39 books of the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament's not been written at this point. I mean, can you get your head around that? The whole, this is, I mean, this is in my Bible. Here we go. Let me draw the marker here, just so we get a sense. Can you imagine learning this all off by heart by the age of 13? Wow, what a challenge. Some did. And so by the age of 14 or 15, it was like, it's the best of the best are in the education system. Most students are now no longer in education. They're working as apprentices in the family business. You're 14 or 15 years old, and then you get the chance if you're lucky, to follow a rabbi. And the process would work like this. The rabbi that you've been working with all these years, you would go up to the rabbi and you would ask if you could follow him. I want to be, you would say to the rabbi, one of your disciples. And when you said this, you weren't just saying, you know, I I, I like the way you do this. You You were literally saying, rabbi, The way you live out God's life, I want to be like you. I want to walk in your footsteps. I want to commit the rest of my life to, I know you know these words, to apprentice, to follow you in every moment, to do life like you do it. I want to be like you. You are the ultimate role model. I want to live your way and the way that you lead us to God. And so the rabbi then would ask you questions and grill you about what you know and what you don't know in your character. And if you were lucky, and many weren't, if you were lucky, you would hear three words that every 15-year-old who'd got through this process just longed to hear. You would hear the rabbi say, come follow me. Come follow me. The best of the best. And then you'd give up everything and commit the rest of your life to following the rabbi in the hope that maybe, just maybe, one day you would be a rabbi too. Does that make sense? So now we come back to this story. 
Levi is a tax collector. He's an outcast in society. He's the opposite of the best of the best. He's the worst of the worst. Who knows how well he was educated? Obviously, he can kind of manage the numbers. But this process, he must have bombed out on uh, pretty early on. Levi would have known a little bit about Jesus, as I said, because Jesus was so popular in Capernaum. He would have known that Jesus was a rabbi, that he was respected as such, an amazing teacher who knew the scriptures inside out. And there are numerous times, as you know, in the Gospels where Jesus teaches and, and the writers uh, write of Jesus that he spoke as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. There was a sense that Jesus was carrying some extra power, some extra gravitas, something which obviously doesn't surprise us as he was God. And so Levi Matthew could not be further from the picture of a rabbi student. And he's not asking to become one. And yet in this groundbreaking moment, Jesus the rabbi breaks all the protocols, all of the processes, and he looks at this rejected outcast and says to him, come follow me. Come follow me. Just give up this old way of life that you're living. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. Come follow me. Live my life. The word that Jesus uses is the Greek word, akulathe, and it's, it's, it's an invitation that's not kind of not a half-hearted thing, you know, just, you know, if you feel like it. It's, it's a command. It's like Jesus saying, I demand you come with me for the rest of your life. Give it everything you've got. Don't settle for being lukewarm and on one moment, off the next moment. Give me everything you've got and you'll discover the very best life. And everyone is shocked, and they're shocked for two reasons. Because it's Jesus the rabbi choosing the student, and it's not supposed to play out that way. And the student is the worst of the worst. This doesn't make sense. It's not the way the church have been doing it. Because everyone looks on Levi and says, you're scum, you're worth nothing, no one wants anything to do with you. And Jesus says, no, I'm picking you for my team. And with you, Matthew, I'm going to change the world. I wonder if Matthew, well, he wouldn't have realized, would he, that that moment would totally change his world and change ours as well. The man who went on to write the gospel that we know as Matthew's gospel. And and what this story reminds us so powerfully about is that whatever you've done and whoever you are, And whether you think you're the worst of the worst, and you're a nobody, and you'll never amount to much, and there are far more gifted people than you, whether you allow those lies, because that's what they are, lies, whether you allow those lies to get a hold of you or not, Jesus cuts through it all, and he says, I want you. I want you to be on my team. I want you, despite your fallenness, your brokenness, because Jesus looks not just at what we are, he looks at what we will become. He sees our potential, and that's what he wants to draw out of us. Not just because of who he is, but because of what he will become in God. A few days earlier, there's another story of Jesus calling some disciples. Uh, you know the story, he's traveling up by the, the harbor, and he calls Peter, James, and John, he speaks to these fishermen. Fishermen! And again, people are thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? 
If you're a fisherman, then you must be like a dunderhead because you probably blew out of the education system very, very young. I mean, who's going to call a fisherman to change the world? But Jesus just keeps turning everything on its head. And why? Why is Jesus doing this? And the answer is in the second part of the story. Levi's response to this whole thing is equally surprising for the gathered crowd. What does he do? Everyone knows that tax collectors are rich, very rich. They've got all these special privileges with the Romans. They've got loads of money. They kind of have a sense of favor, even though everyone hates them. They are doing very well. And so sometimes we gloss over the fact that when Matthew made a decision to follow Jesus, which he did do, he was giving up a huge amount. Because I guess on one level, you know, if you're despised by people, you know, that, that, that is not great. No one likes to be disliked. But like, you know, if you've got the nice house with the swimming pool and the servants and all of this kind of stuff, well, you can, you can build a wall around your life and just say, well, I'm okay. You know, when, when I'm swimming or sitting in my hot tub later drinking, you know, a, a beer or something like that, there'll be, you know, 10 of them crammed into a little six by six house. It's all good. But Matthew see something in Jesus, chooses to embrace him and gives it all up. He gives the whole lot up and he throws this massive party. It's a leaving party because he's about to leave his old life and embrace this new life of following Jesus. And so who does he invite? Well, when you're scum, nice people don't want to come to your party. So the only thing you can do is invite other scum. So that's what he does. Tax collectors and sinners and and all these other people. The worst kind of sinners, Mark says. And don't you just love verse 15 of chapter 2. I love that verse. I drew your attention to it in brackets. It said, there were many of these kind of people among Jesus' followers. Scum, sinners, reprobates, perverts, prostitutes, tax collectors. There were many of these kind of people amongst Jesus' followers. But it's time for the church to rock up, to break up the party. What's going on here? Jesus, you're a rabbi, you're a holy man. What are you doing messing with all of these disgusting lowlifes, these horrible people? And actually, the fact that you eat with them, you know, um, food and hospitality was a real sign of affirmation and kind of connection. So it would be one thing to talk to Levi Matthew in the street, but to go to his house and eat with him was a real sign of acceptance. And so the Pharisees are saying, what are you doing? How can you possibly be accepting these, beha- these people? And yet the truth is that they just didn't know Jesus at all. Because they didn't really know God at all. Because they had the wrong image of God. And the, if you have a wrong image of God, then the more damage you're going to do. You see, Jesus doesn't separate himself from distasteful people. He goes looking for them. He goes looking for them. And he makes his mission very clear at the end of the story. And he's saying to the Pharisees, listen, I'm not spending time with these people because their sin is not a problem. I'm spending time with these people because they know that their sin is a problem. 
I'm not hanging out with these people because they've got it, they think they've got it all together. Like you, the church, think you've got it all together. I'm spending time with these people because they know they're screwed up. Because they know they're broken. Because they know they're sick and they need a doctor. And I want to bring healing and wholeness to them. There's a story in 1985. There was a swimming pool in New Orleans and a big outdoor pool. And they were having an end of pool celebration. End of pool season celebration. And the reason they were celebrating was this. It was the first summer season in their recorded history that no one drowned. Just think about that. Great safety record. And so it was the end of the season. They were having a big party. Loads of people gathered in this New Orleans outdoor pool. And as the party finished and they asked everyone to leave the pool, they suddenly realized that at the bottom of the deep end was a 31-year-old man who had drowned while they were partying called Jerome Hardy. So busy partying, so busy having a great time. We've got it all together. Look what we've done. That right in the middle of them, someone was dying and they missed it. What a challenge to us as the church that we can do the same. Let's play it safe. Let's party. Let's sing our songs. Let's do all of that kind of stuff. And outside our walls, there are people going to hell in a handcart. And Jesus goes looking for these kind of people. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he does? Because you wouldn't be here if he didn't, because we are those kind of people. That's who we are. We're broken, mixed up, muddled up people. You know, we all think we know each other, but the reality is we don't really, because we've all got a secret life. And maybe some of us are in good, healthy, accountable relationships where the secret life is exposed. And I hope that that is true because there's life and and reality in that. And we need that. Real people walking, journeying with us. Paul and Timothy's who are keeping us accountable for walking the right life. But the tragedy is that so often that's not the case and there's a secret life. And yet Jesus knows it all. He knows your secret life today. He knows the stuff that you don't speak about. Some of you maybe even be married and there's stuff that you think about you, you, don't, you don't even talk to your partner about. Don't, by the way, go up in the break and say to them afterwards, did you not tell me anything? Is that, is Matt, is that a prophetic word from Matt? It's not, it's not. But, but you, some of you know what I'm talking about. There's some stuff that you just feel, I can't share that. I can't speak that out. And I'm not worthy. And I I want you to know this morning, Jesus is looking for you. He's searching for you. He's not put off by you. Matthew's story reminds us of this. Two responses to this story this morning for us. Jesus, number one, is not searching for people who think they've got it all together. He's searching for people who have the humility to admit that they've messed up. Eugene Peterson says this, when we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus this morning. No one. I I love what Mike Iaconelli writes in his book, Messy Spirituality. He says this, I often have a dream that I'm tagging along behind Jesus, longing for him to choose me as one of his disciples. Without warning, he turns around, looks straight into my eyes and says, follow me. 
My heart races and I'm beginning to run towards him when he interrupts and says, oh no, not you, just the guy behind you I was talking to, sorry. He goes on to say, I feel like I'm the only Dumbo in the kingdom of God, a spiritual nincompoop lost in a ship full of brilliant biblical thinkers, an ungodly midget in a world of spiritual giants. And some of us really identify with that this morning, don't we? And some of us look at speakers and worship leaders and pastors and we think, oh, they've got it all together. But I want to say to you this morning, not in a way I'm down on myself, I'm broken. Jesus is healing me, he's, but he's chosen me and he loves me, but he knows me. He knows me. He's an amazing dad and he knows me. He's an inclusive God. Iaconelli goes on to say, some of us actually believe that until we choose the correct way to live, like I was saying yesterday, it's religion. Some of us actually believe that unless we choose the correct way to live, we aren't choosable. Until we clean up the mess, Jesus won't have anything to do with us. The opposite is true. Until we admit we're in a mess, Jesus won't have anything to do with us. The radical, inclusive Jesus who says to us today, you're chosen. I love the story of Gideon in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 8. Of course, the, the most famous part of it is when he... Uh, is involved in defeating the Midianite army with just 300 men. But it's the call of Gideon that I particularly love. That, you know, the God's people are being massively oppressed by the Midianites. And there we find Gideon trying to hide some food and stuff. And the angel of the Lord appears, putching, and says, Arise, a mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And you kind of get this moment. He's probably only about 16, 17 years old. And he's kind of looking around just thinking, Who is the angel speaking to? And then he speaks and says, um, I think you are badly mistaken. You've obviously not been on planet Earth for the last little while. The Lord is obviously not with us. The Midianites are crushing us. And do you know about me? Do you know who I am? And he goes through this kind of liturgy of things saying, my tribe, our tribe are rubbish. We are the worst tribe in the whole 12 tribes. And within our tribe, our, my clan, the clan that I'm a part of, within our tribe, we are hopeless. We, are, we always lose at sports. We're terrible. And then, you know, just forget that. In our, my family, in our clan, in our tribe, everyone looks on us as a bunch of losers. We're completely rubbish. And, we're, and, and, by the, and me, and me in my family, in my clan, in my, in my tribe, I am a nobody. The Hebrew word he uses to describe himself is insignificant. This guy's got an inferiority complex, I would say. But what does God call him? Mighty warrior. Why? Because God sees what he will become if he would just embrace the God who knows him? Not looking at Gideon through rose-tinted spectacles. Not pretending that he doesn't have weaknesses and failures. Of course he does. But he sees what he can become. He sees who he created God, uh, Gideon to be. A hero. A somebody. A person of great significance. God takes weak, and weak broken people. And he invites them to follow him to participate in his kingdom work. That's why Jesus opens his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, Blessed are the poor 
in spirit. Blessed are those who know they've not got it all together, who know they're broken, who know they sin, who know they struggle, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Belongs to them. There's a great story that um, Mike Iaconelli tells, again in his book, Messy Spirituality, of a lady called Margaret. She's nine years old. She had a horrible primary school teacher called Mrs. Garner. And Mrs. Garner really hated Margaret. And at one time, Margaret got something wrong in class, and she shouted out in front of the class, Margaret, you're stupid. You'll never amount to anything. In fact, come to the front. Margaret came to the front, stood by the blackboard, and then Mrs. Garner turned to all of the other students, who again were nine years old, and said, right, one by one, you're all going to come up here and write something on the board, a word that will describe Margaret. So 20 or so nine-year-olds came up to this blackboard and wrote rubbish, stupid, ugly. And for 40 years, Margaret had lived with those words. Eventually, she connects in with a Christian counselor who's working through these issues, and he says to her on one particular occasion, we've got to go back there, we've got to talk through that, let's think through what happened. And so she re Uh, shares the story with him, and she gets to the end of it and then says to him, that's it. And he said, that's not it. There was more. And she says, no, that's how it finished. And he said, no, Margaret, just look. If you would just look at the back of the room, you'll see Jesus. And Jesus is coming now to the front. Would you look? Could you just imagine he's coming to the front and he's taking that whiteboard uh, marker and he's wiping all of those words off. And now it's clean, and now he's picking up the chalk. Can you see what he's writing, Margaret? He's writing, Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is special. Margaret is unique. Margaret has potential. Margaret will be a hero. Margaret is a world changer. Margaret is loved. And the scripture says to us today, through thousands of years of history, whose report... Will you believe? Whose report will you believe? Our first response to this amazing story, as we think about this radical Jesus who turns everything on its head and chooses and goes for and runs for broken people, is to do what Matthew did and just go for it and follow him. Because as we said yesterday, he's the best deal that we're ever going to get. But our second response in closing is that we must live like him. This good news to us, this sense of us being accepted must mean that we also must accept. This, This God that we serve who is radically inclusive, that everyone is chosen. Everyone is chosen. Everyone's included challenges us to live the same way. 1 John 2 verse 6, we read it yesterday. Those who say they live for God should live their lives as Jesus did. And we only do this in the power of the Spirit. The way of Jesus is is a way of inclusiveness where we welcome and embrace and invite everybody to be a part of the kingdom, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're healthy, whether they're sick, whether they're gray, whether they're straight, whether they're a pedophile, whatever they are, whatever their story, the good news of the kingdom is there is healing for you. 
There is forgiveness for you. There is grace for you. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle with this when it relates to other people is that we confuse acceptance with approval. They're different. Jesus accepts sinful people. It doesn't mean he agrees with everything they do. There's a big difference. You can accept someone, you can love someone, you can invite someone into your home, you can embrace them into your life. It doesn't mean you agree with everything they do. But Jesus loves sin out of people. Doesn't he? That's what he does. So many stories. The story of the woman caught in adultery. He engages with them to rescue them. You've got to be in it to win it. Bring them life forgiveness. William Barclay was a Scottish uh, preacher, theologian. He was involved in the Second World War, France. It was near the end of the war. He was with a patrol, and one of the guys in his battalion had been killed. And so they found uh, a church and went up to the priest in the church and said, you know, our, our friend, our brother has been killed, and we would love to bury him in this church. And the priest said, is he Catholic? And they said, no, he's not, he's Protestant. And so the priest said, I'm really sorry, but we cannot bury a Protestant in, the, uh, in this church, in the, in the area around this church. And so they begged him, they said, oh, please, you know, we don't, we don't carry his body for weeks and weeks and weeks, please, will you bury him? And so he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do a little ceremony now, and then outside the fence of the church, you can, just, you can bury him just outside the fence. So there's a sense he's kind of next to the graveyard, but on the other side of the fence. And so they agreed, and they buried him, and then they went away, and then the following day, before they were going to start to make their journey home, they went back to the church. And they wandered around, and they couldn't find the grave. It was gone. And so they went up to the priest. They were ready to kind of take him out. Where's the grave? What did you do? And the priest said, I just couldn't sleep last night with what I had done. So I got up in the middle of the night and I moved the fence so that he's in. I wonder what fences we're putting up that are stopping people hearing the good news of Jesus. I wonder what prejudices. You know, we, we want to think we're not, but that Jesus wants to reveal to us by the Spirit that we need to confess. Because the church, if it's going to be the church, is going to be messy. Because people are messy. I remember speaking to Paul Scanlon, uh, um, or reading, so not speaking to him, reading his book um, about Abundant Life Bradford Church. You may know it's a very large church in Bradford. And he tells the story that, you know, when they were a church of, you know, just a hundred or so, he'd kind of wander around the church at the end of one Sunday, and it suddenly struck him that as people were having coffee, everyone was leaving their handbags and possessions on the chairs. And he thought to himself, if we were reaching the right kind of people, then no one would leave their handbag by themselves on the chair. And so they committed themselves to reach the, th the thieving, the stolen, the broken, and it halved their church. Because loads of people just didn't want to do that. They just want to play it safe. Can we not just keep it in the fence? 
But Jesus, the problem is, if you want to be where Jesus is, he's on the other side of the fence. And now he's one of the biggest churches in the country. Because they've committed themselves, as I know you have. The the purpose of the church is mission, 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 mission. We exist for the purposes of those outside the fence. And so I close and we'll pray. And I'm just praying that uh, God has encouraged you that you are chosen. You are special. That he loves you. That he accepts you. That he's chosen you. You don't have to be something. You don't have to do something to get his love. You're there. And for a moment, just allow the sense of God's affirmation of you. Just receive it. Just receive it. That sense of God in this moment, in the quietness of this moment, being very close to you. Because what he wants to say to you more than anything else is, I love you. And we would answer back and say, but, 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 what, but, what, about, but, I love you. I choose you. Come follow me. Receive his love this morning. Receive it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Receive it. We receive your love today, Lord. Receive your love. Thank you, Father. And then just before I hand over back to Simon, just for a moment, let's again be still and allow the Holy Spirit to do some surgery and maybe reveal some prejudices. Maybe even now there's the face of a person coming to mind who really winds you up. Hopefully they're not in the room. Because in the kingdom of God, your enemies are your neighbors. They're your brothers and sisters. And Jesus says you have to pray for them and you have to do good things for them. Because you win them over with kindness. Lord, we confess our prejudices. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to overcome them. We know it's, just, it's not just a switch. We've built them up over many decades. So what we're asking, Lord, is that we would see people with your eyes. With your eyes. That we would be an inclusive people.
in the name of Jesus. Amen.